0: You're listening to Gaze Gaze, in which we're gay, and we gaze into media that's by, for, or about ladies who love ladies. And sometimes we talk about other stuff. My name's Erin, and you're just like me then. I thought you might be. You don't care for men.
1: And my name's Erin, and get this thing called bloomers replicated right away!
2: And my name's Jenny, and you'll stay in the barrel. You'll stay in the barrel until it rolls all the way down.
1: The way my jaw has dropped. Welcome, Jenny, for joining us and suggesting Lady Snowblood for us to talk about today. I'm so excited.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for having me back. I'm so glad I'm informally becoming, like, female- Batshit gay assassin, uh, you know, correspondent. I'm having a great time.
1: <laughs> I, I, yeah, I know. I know. After we did Mercia Lago together, when you were like, if I find anything else good with lesbian assassins, I'll let you know. And then you come to us with Lady Snowblood, which was <laughs> just amazing to do a deep dive on. Mm-hmm.
2: I feel like we'll get more into it, but it's like this one's more like actually good serious and more, I think, linked to like mainstream American media in a way that I think, pe- rather than like, here's this incredibly niche Yuri anime, it's like, hey, have you heard of a little <laughs> movie called Kill Bill?
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, Lady Snowblood, I think in America, is most commonly known as the major inspiration for the first Kill Bill movie. Honestly, in mm-hmm. a lot of ways, Quentin Tarantino just ripped this movie off almost perfectly, really for use and kill bill. Like there are some things that are adapted, and then there are some things that are just like blatantly lifted from it.
2: Yeah. Oh, we'll get into that. I'm very excited to talk about the production of this movie and then like how Tarantino's relationship to like the actors of this movie, how he views this movie. He's ta- he's not talked about it directly from what I found. Maybe you guys found something different, but like there's tons of like colloquial evidence slash like other people telling stories of how he talks about this movie that i think are really fascinating it's also something where i think if you haven't read the manga you wouldn't necessarily realize that it's queer uh, or that it's you know gay content because most of that is taken from kill bill you have to kind of do like i think there's a pretty clear queer reading of kill bill but you know it's, it's a reading not actually canonical content and the movie um as we're about to get into they cut uh, there's also it's very similar in that it's like you could do a queer reading but it is not explicitly queer at all and so like i think some people might see this and be kind of surprised that we're doing a summary but then it's like you read the manga and you're like oh
1: yeah this this bitch gay (laughs) yeah no this is gay gay the manga like is is very gay um Mm -hmm. actually i was reading but then i couldn't find the original source anywhere but i was reading that um the reason that the movie was was not gay and they cut all of the lesbian interaction and lesbian sex scenes was because the lead actress, Meiko Kaji, she was not comfortable doing them. And so the director was like, okay, then we just won't.
2: Yes. (laughs) That's also what I heard, but yet again, like no direct sources, but I heard very similar stuff, which when we get into her background and the kind of, uh, like the reason she was selected for this role and like the kind of TV and movies that she did before then, I find that very interesting and speaks to kind of like, the attitude of, like, gay content in Japan in, like, 1970s through 1990s kind of exploitation or, like, sexploitation film. Like, it's just very interesting because that's kind of, like, a strain throughout all of the media surrounding this. And it just, like, reverberates throughout, like, not just the production, but, like, the movies it's inspired and all of that sort of content.
1: Definitely. Well, before we get into summarizing the first movie, so we'll walk through the movie the manga, the sequel spin-off movie, which sucked, preview, and then then, uh, we'll talk about the Kill Bill, like Kill Bill and its adaptation. But before we get through all of that, um, just quick content warnings for pretty much everything under the sun, honestly. But some large themes of the movie and manga are sexual assault, child abuse, murder, and very excessive gore, and also suicide does come up in the movie as well but yeah jenny you can take it away with summarizing the first movie
2: so quick fun fact before i get into the summary i also had a really great chance and i also want to plug a local movie theater i got a chance to see this in a theater even though it Mm -hmm. was released in like 1973 it's not like a super mainstream movie um i gotta see this in a theater because i live in the twin cities and if you've heard of the Trilon cinema Uh, It's a small local theater that doesn't show any, like, current movies. They have, like, themed months. June's theme was, like, A Dish Best Served Cold, and it was, like, some of the best revenge movies. Um, So I got to see this movie in a cinema with a bunch of other movie nerds, and it was really incredible. And my main thing is, if you love, like, weird movies or just want to support local theaters and you live in the Minnesota area, I would definitely recommend the Trilon Cinema. It was wonderful to see this on a big screen, so... Uh now I'll dive into the actual movie but that's my little recommendation of the of the week. <laughs> um this movie is told it's sort of a the first hour or so is non-sequential but I'll sort of tell it sort of narratively. Um but for this first hour basically we see this woman um her name is Shurayuki Hime or uh Lady Snowblood but everybody calls her Yuki. Uh, she kills a man in the middle of the street in a great action sequence and then we see her Uh, appear in sort of like a poor village looking for this leader of an underground organization of beggars and asking for him to find several men. And then we sort of intersperse throughout this, get a flashback that builds the narrative and this woman's motivation, which is that um, 20 years ago, a woman um, who we find out later is named Sayo gives birth to a baby girl. She sees snow falling outside, so she names the child Yuki we find out that this woman originally had a husband and a son, and they were killed in sort of a local plot. So basically there was this scheme where uh, sort of local crooks were convincing people that anybody who came into town was a government official who was going to try and draft people for um, recent wars. Um, and then they were taking funds from the local villagers to sort of line their own pockets. And so Sayo's husband uh, and son were, Uh, They were all moving to this town to just become the local elementary school teacher, but they accused him of being a government official and basically brutally killed. um, Sayo's husband and son raped her. And then one of the criminals then took her as sort of like his basically sex slave and lived with her for several years. She was able to kill him. She was then sent to prison for his murder. Um, And while in prison, she slept with many prison guards in an attempt to become pregnant She becomes pregnant, gives birth to Yuki, dies during childbirth, um, and basically, with her dying breath, sort of declares Yuki is going to be the uh, avatar for her vengeance um, uh, upon the three remaining people who raped her and killed her uh, husband and son. So she is killed. There was the four people that were part of the original evil plot. She kills um, Shoukei Tokuichi, The remaining three are Takamure Banzo, Gishiro, and Okono. Um, So two men and a woman. Okono is the woman. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, Yuki is hunting down these people in an attempt to avenge her mother's death, her mother who she never knew. As she continues sort of the modern day Yuki sort of continues the hunt for these three remaining criminals. We also get, the her backstory in terms of like how she was trained to become such a skilled assassin. Um, and that's because one of the uh prisoners at the prison where Yuki was born uh, had befriended Yuki's mother, takes her in and takes her to a sort of dojo where a priest named Dokai trains her in the art of killing. Um, he claims she is an Ashura demon. She, he, his basically plot is to dehumanize her and say, oh, you're not a person. You're just like an avatar for your mother's vengeance. Um, so she undergoes some pretty brutal training where she learns how to fight, um, especially with a sword and sort of blend in to society and yeah, become a killer assassin. So these plots basically all converge when Yugi successfully tracks down Takamura, um, who is one of the prisoners He is currently just like an alcoholic wreck. He has a gambling addiction. He's a total mess. However, he has a very sweet daughter named Kobue. Um, She's currently lying to him. And uh, she pretends to sort of sell these straw baskets that she makes to support the family. But she's actually prostituting herself at the local uh, sort of gambling institution. So Yuki finds Kobue and we get the first sort of hint For the first hour, she's basically – we get her backstory, and she's just very coldly, like, tracing down various criminals, killing them. She's been working as a paid assassin. We get the first hint of her humanity when she interacts with Kobue, um, who is the daughter of somebody she plans to kill. But she is very kind to Kobue, recognizes that what she's doing to support her father – and um, they have a moment of connection by the seaside. Um, Kobue's thing is that she she creates these straw baskets and then throws them over the ocean and pretends to have sold them. Yuki finds her, realizes that she's Takamura's daughter, realizes that she's going to kill Kobue's father and probably leave her destitute or driftless. So gives her the name of somebody, uh, I believe in Tokyo, but in, in the city to support her um, and then leaves. She is able to uh, isolate Takamura. He gets in trouble at a local gambling den. She's able to get him forgiven, but then takes him to that same seaside where she had had that moment of humanity with his daughter and does kill him. But she finds out that one of her mother's rapists, Gishiro, died in a shipwreck three years earlier. Um, so the only one left is Okono, who is um, the lone woman of the criminals. So there, even though she had planned to have three people left to kill, one has already died. She has su- successfully killed one, however, feels pretty. You can tell she does not feel very satisfied by it, especially because she had this moment of connection with his daughter. But she continues on to try to find Okono. Um, at this point, she befriends a reporter named Ryure Ashio. They sort of have some tension where he's sort of following her around and has been tracking her career as an assassin. They hatch a plot together where he basically writes sort of a news article slash sort of almost like a, a like weekly periodical about her life and like her assassinations to draw out Akono. Okono sends men to kidnap the reporter Ashio, leading Yuki to come and kill a bunch of people and save him. Unfortunately, okono realizing that she has been sort of out attempts to take her own life yuki does manage to successfully kill okono in that hearing that sh- uh she's able to hear her sort of dying heartbeat and does get the satisfaction of sli- slicing her in half <laughs> it seems as though that's sort of the end of yuki's revenge plot one person was killed by her mother one person died in a shipwreck she is successfully killed too However, the last act is basically a frantic realization that um, Gishiro did not die in the shipwreck and has in fact changed his identity. Um, it was like a cover so he could help uh, like sell opium and sell various, or no, not sell opium, sell weapons um, for the recent wars that Japan has found itself embroiled in. We also get the reveal that uh, Gishiro is um, Ashio, the reporter's father, and has basically been like running scared from Yuki for the last three years. So last scene, there's a masquerade ball that's being held like European style as sort of like an exchange, cultural exchange. And there's an incredibly fun clusterfuck action scene where there's a man acting as a decoy in the masquerade. They are able to follow the real Gashiro, who for some reason was there, <laughs> um, even though he set up, did all this work to set up a decoy. Um <laughs> Kishiro shoots his own son, takes his son, and uses him as a human shield, assuming that Yuki would not injure him. But Ashio sort of makes eye contact with Yuki and says, Do it, end it. Yuki stabs Kishiro through Ashio, killing them both. Um, she is shot, um, but seemingly non lethally. She stumbles out into the snow. However, she is stabbed by Kobue, who re- realized that Yuki was the one who had killed her father and has come to take revenge on the woman who has murdered her father. Cowboy stabs Yuki. They have a moment of connection yet again, but then runs away before she can finish the job. Um, Yuki lies in the snow, seemingly dying. However, the last shot is the next morning as the sun rises. We see her open her eyes, and her mission might be complete, but her life continues. So yeah, that's the pretty pretty straightforward summary. I feel like I kind of saved some more detailed scenes for when we do a little more comparison, but uh mm-hmm. really good movie. Really uh, it's hard to get into it in a summary, but like the way everything is shot, the action scenes, the music, it's it's just a really phenomenal film. It's really good. It's it
1: really it's really it's draws such a your beautiful film, in.
0: yeah. Yeah. And it's wild to think that this was filmed like what was it like 1960s or something
1: no i think it was shot in
0: like yeah it was shot in like 1971
2: and 72 i believe
0: yeah which is it's it's kind of unbelievable when you're watching it because there are some absolutely insane shots like the the camera's very far away and then it zooms in very close or it's very close and then it zooms out i was watching it and i was like I, i kind of had a moment of like oh yeah like they can do that. And then I was like, wait a minute, like, this is like a, like a film camera. Like, this is fucking crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> um, also, just... the the blood, too. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to bring up. Amazing. <laughs> oh, my God, yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I was going to say the special effects, I guess you would call it. But what were you going to say?
0: Oh, no, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, the squibs are filled with this, like, bright red blood. It's, like, captivating every time. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, this definitely feels like a movie where they went, I I don't want to say like, the style, it's definitely like aesthetic over realism, but in a way that really works because it's consistent throughout the entire movie. So, you know, the title itself, Lady Snowblood, there's tons of, uh, the movie is clearly made to set in winter, and so there's tons of snow scenes and most of the action scenes take place in the snow and so it's like this bright red like gashes against the snow she wears like a um white kimono with like a black sash and so then like anytime there's even a little bit of blood it's like incredibly stark um she's very pale too so it like works really well It's just like it's a movie with like really heavy color contrast which is part of like especially the first I would say like two acts like I, w- I would argue this movie kind of in three acts they're sort of the first act where we get the setup of she's an assassin here's her backstory and training the second act which is her sort of um, finding the two criminals Takamura the gambler and then Akono the woman and like killing them and then the third act I would argue is sort of like the reveal that the last criminal is still alive and sort of that like very messy scene or messy I, I mean messy very affectionately because it's just like things just keep happening and you're like what what what, what? like <laughs> it feels like the movie kind of like after the first two acts was almost like calming down and then it's just like here is like a basically 20 minute long absolutely bananas action scene that just keeps going and going and going but mm-hmm. like you the whole time you're kind of captivated but yeah, uh, so as you probably noticed from the summary too, and I was putting in my my own interpretation. There's no explicitly queer content, uh, but I I would argue. I mean, like I'm I'm putting in a queer reading because because I'm coming in. Because you're only queer in your
1: reading. Okay.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I do be queer and I do be reading. But I would argue that in this movie, one I would say like the two people that Yuki has a human connection with mm-hmm. are Kobue. Who are uh, who is Takamura's daughter, who she, like, it's clear there's just, like, this moment. It's, like, the only time she feels a sense of regret killing anybody. And then, obviously, the reporter, Ashio, who we'll get into this when we talk about the manga, but is, like, not really an existing character there are quite a few changes yeah. from the original manga but my thing is like Kobue. definitely we're now getting into like non-canonical and just jenny gay opinion time Kobue felt like a very genuine human connection she had like against her better judgment um whether or not there was attraction but there was like feeling both in terms of like relating to like not being able to choose who your parents were Versus, like, just genuine affection and, like, their first scene where they see each other, um, she sees Kobue, like, throwing the wood- the straw-tied baskets off the ocean and is, like, kind of transfixed. And it it felt, like, kind of, mu- like, a almost, like, love at first sight, the way it was shot, like, very, like, yeah. she-, she doesn't, like, seek out Kobue and, like, know who she is and go, like, oh, I'm trying to find information on your dad. She just actually, like, clearly sees Kobue doing this kind of odd thing and is sort of, like, charmed by it. And it isn't until she later that she realizes that Kobe is Takamura's daughter and is clearly kind of heartbroken about it. So it's the first time after this hour of like, here's this woman, she's a demon, she has no humanity, all of this kind of stuff. We see her like, basically go out of her way to be kind of like, wow, a cute girl doing something interesting. And I don't know, I thought, I thought it was interesting that one of her most humanizing moments was something that I would argue was like almost her having like developing a little crush that's then sadly crushed by her... Draw for revenge, but then the final act. So like the reporter character Ashio, he is very clearly coded to be kind of like a love interest. But they like there's a scene where they like clean each other's wounds and all this kind of stuff. But it felt kind of tacked on. And also they just like didn't have the same chemistry. Yet again, there's also nothing explicitly romantic between the two of them. Which uh, I know you guys have talked many times about on the podcast and just general queer readings of things, especially from this era. It's like if characters aren't explicitly heterosexual, then like that's in itself kind of queer because like most cases would be like, oh, well, of course, blah, 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 blah. But like having there be explicitly no romantic interaction can sometimes be like a little gay.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely.
2: Just a phenomenal movie. I would definitely recommend just watching it. I know it's on a canopy if people have that and obviously you can find a rip online, but Yeah, really phenomenal. I'm a little scared to ask about the second movie because the first one was so good. (laughs) I know, the first one
1: was really good. Um, And I also, I think that part of the reason why the first one is so good is that, so it's very outside of the director's typical style. Um, The director is Mm Toshia Fujita. And the first movie is very, very heavily based on the manga, even though there are differences. Like, he definitely tried to keep it Pretty true to form, and didn't like really lean into his own style. But then, because the second movie isn't based on the manga or anything, and they just gave him the license to make a sequel, he very much like tried mm-hmm. to do it in a way that he was interested in, but that would also still honor the manga artist Kazuo Koike's kind of vi- vision for it. So it just has a very different feel to it. We'll talk about it after we talk about the manga. But like Toshia Fujita. His style outside of making these two movies. So, like early in his career, he did a lot of exploitation films about juvenile delinquents. Mm-hmm. and um mm-hmm. also some of them did star Mako kaji who plays lady snowblood interestingly
2: yeah that's how she was actually kind of selected for this role i was reading up and it makes kind of like their like sexploitation kind of like she's a yakuza spy criminal yes. film so like the fact that several reports indicate she was like uncomfortable with doing like any sort of lesbian scenes at all but like it was like Kind of like a lot of the stuff I was just like reading summaries. It's like this whole series called like Scorpion Female Prisoner Female Prisoner Scorpion. Um, it they're basically like rape exploitation films. Yes, and so like the fact that she was like willing to do that, I don't know if it's a matter of like she was willing to do that but not this, or if she had made she had more power and sort of like as a more established actress to then turn down more additional things that made her feel uncomfortable. Yeah.
1: I don't know. It. I Another thing too, is that, so Fujita who made these movies, he, before making Lady Snowblood, he was making um, pink films, which are softcore pornography during Nikatsu's ro- Roman porno era is what it's called. Oh. So he was a pretty prominent pink film director. So it kind of makes sense as to why he was picked for Lady Snowblood, because it has quite a lot of gratuitous sex and sexual assault in it the, mm-hmm. like the source material does but then that would make sense why they then brought in K- Kaji and then maybe why he kind of pivoted away from doing the more pink filmy stuff in Lady Snowblood and then also after he made these movies he did he went right back to making pink films and delinquent movies so they like really stand out these two movies are what he's best known for today
2: that's so interesting. I like my first instinct was almost to say good for him, but maybe not. I don't know. Maybe I have to see.
1: Either.
0: Yeah. <laughs> good um, for us as people who got to watch this movie. Yeah, True.
1: True. <laughs> the second movie has very leftist themes as well, <laughs> which <laughs> we will talk about. Um, a little bit more about the actress to uh, Kaji. So she's been in over 100 movies.
2: Fuck yeah. Now a
1: real good for her. She's still active in acting. Whoa! Um, Hell yeah! She's 76 years old now. Recently, I think this was just in 2021, she was in the TV adaptation of the Boys Love manga, What Did You Eat Yesterday? Which I thought was very interesting as well. (laughs) Um, Doing some yaoi acting today.
2: Well, What's the vibe go. on that b l do we know have you heard of it
1: <laughs> um that b l it's by um by the author of antique bakery if you're familiar yeah yeah um,
0: oh okay yeah interesting.
1: um here, it's very very
0: like shonen eye like it's, they they're dating but they they like it's very chaste <laughs>
1: yes so okay, okay. the the it's by fumi Yoshinaga is the name of the artist um, it is about a middle-aged gay couple that live in Tokyo. One's a lawyer, one's a hairdresser, and it's just like a slice of life daily comedy drama about like office humor, their married life together, and it also goes just on to talk about LGBT rights in modern Japan. So yeah, it's kind of and, interesting um, then, that she's in the
0: TV drama for it. I mean, it is very chaste, so it maybe... Is or maybe she's you know changed her opinion about gay stuff over time or maybe just because it wasn't her doing the scenes then she was all right with it. But yeah, with that manga too, it's actually I I recommend it. It's a little bit like not a lot happens, I guess is how I would phrase yeah, that. Yeah. normal um, life. And yeah, normal life and um and then each chapter as well has a little recipe so you can also cook what they're <gasps> cooking, which yes. I fucking love.
2: That also happens in Marcia Lago. That's crazy. Sorry. Oh my God. It does happen in Marcia
1: Lago.
2: Yeah, I can't help but wonder, too, if it's like, and maybe I'm just being very, like, it could be the actress was, like, homophobic and now isn't and all this Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Like, there's so many potential motivations. But part of me also wonders, it's like, I feel like. If somebody in the 1970s was like, "Oh, you might be doing a gay scene, like a lesbian scene," versus like now, the yeah, difference with absolutely. like intimacy coordinators, how exploitative that would feel, how shitty yeah. that would feel, how like leery people would be. It could also be of like, "Oh, this is like gonna be," uh, and this is like kind of a deep dive, but I feel like even in like the kind of sleaziest sexploitation exploitation films, on set when people are filming like you know sexual assault scenes. I'm guessing there was certain protocol or just, like, social etiquette of, like, not being too weird or creepy about it to, like, make actresses uncomfortable. Whereas, like, I'm guessing for a, like, lesbian shot sex scene and that era, and probably, unfortunately, still today, I mean, I've... I've heard about how blue is the warmest color fucking was in some other films and stuff. There's like it's more of like, ha ha ha, isn't this hot? Like there's just like very male gazy stuff. Yeah. So I can't help but wonder if that was part of the motivation. And I guess we'll never know, yeah. but I don't know. Just interesting yeah. to think about.
1: I'm right there yeah. with you. I mean, and
0: who knows? Like Perfect Blue, that came out in like the late nineties. And there's a, a plot point in that is how like like horrible filming a sex scene is. <laughs> i mean yeah. a, actually specifically a rape scene um as an actress so like like god knows
2: seems like if you are an actress uh unfortunately unless you like i feel like it's getting better nowadays but especially for older movies it's like oh just like shooting any sex scene was like fucking horrible which like just grim state of affairs but like you literally just couldn't win
0: yeah yeah god. The movie's plenty exploitative without lesbianness in and, it. So, like, oh
1: well. Yeah, and so <laughs> yeah. is the manga, honestly. Um, yeah. Oh so my let's, God. So, let's talk about the manga.
0: It's so funny because, like, I mean, with Alago* too, this is very obviously, like, very male gazy in its representation of lesbians. Still, though, I sometimes I'm here to eat it up. Like, it feels like it, even though it is so obviously exploitative, like there are moments where I'm like, this kind of feels like it is for me, even though it's obviously not. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: yeah, I feel that with Mercy Alago, especially too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm, I'm there with oh, you. Absolutely.
2: No, I mean it doesn't help that it's like it's just so fun in a way that it, even yeah. when there's moments where you're like, oh this is fucking horrible. Like also, there is a thing of like just messy, horrible lesbians. That's just like I'm always gonna be a fan of. I'm just always gonna be a fan of.
1: Yeah, we, I know, we man. like complex lesbian media and sapphic media here on gay space. It's true. <laughs> so would you would you like to start with talking about the movie to manga differences or about Kazuo Koike? Um, uh-huh.
2: Let's start with some of the movie manga differences. Okay,
1: I think yeah, and
2: then we can sort of get into the yeah. So. Movie manga differences, I mean, they're quite plentiful, actually, because as we've we've mentioned, not only was the gay content cut out, but sort of the names and a lot of the general motivations of the criminals that um, Yuki is hunting down are changed. I will say the overall plot, which is her mother dies in prison, gives her this vengeance curse, she's raised under a horrible priest, and then is, like, hunting down the criminals... I would say the main difference is not only that it's gay but it's more integrated into like Japanese history.
0: Yes that is very true. The first few scenes of the movie those are taken like right from the manga with her like doing an assassination and then meeting up with the leader of that like a uh, beggar group. But other than that the structure of the manga and the movie they're quite different uh, even though Yuki's Uh, Origin story is the same for both. So in the manga, Lady Snowblood is a well-known assassin, and she takes a lot of jobs that are just one-shots for like every chapter. Uh, She is a master of deceit, disguise, assassination, and she also learns pickpocketing in a later chapter. Though she mostly outright kills her targets, she also sometimes tricks them into a situation that leads to them kind of ruining their life or leads to them going to prison she is also always on the lookout for more information on the three people who tortured her mother. For Okono, she does not die in the manga. Instead, Oyuki... Inst- I actually, it's... In the in the scanlation, they said Oyuki, oh, but is it Yuki?
1: It, like, Yuki is a nickname for her oh.
0: name of Oyuki.
2: Please feel free to blast me in the comments if I'm wrong, but I, I think that especially since, like, Yuki means snow in Japanese, it's like, oh, like... If you're ever like saying phrases where it's like we need to delineate between like the word snow versus like this is someone's name. Oh. So that's part of it. So I tend to just default to calling her Yuki. But I've also seen O-Yuki. in my notes I have like both written down pretty interchangeably. Mm-hmm. So
1: in, in the manga, her name is Oyuki. In the movie, her name may or may not be Oyuki, but they call her Yuki. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So her name in the manga is Oyuki. So that is a difference right off the bat.
0: Oh yeah, that's fair. (laughs) Also, I'm so sorry. I'm going to briefly interrupt to let you know that it's my cat's birthday, and he's banging on the door to my office. (laughs) He knows. He knows. He knows. He knows. Happy birthday
1: Leonard. He's like you would record on my birthday instead of spending time. Birthday.
0: I did buy him uh, a little rainbow catnip toy for his birthday, and it arrived in the mail. And then, even though it was like a very heavy package because it was also full of cat food, he knocked it off of the table like multiple times, trying to break in to get the catnip no- toy. And now he fucking loves it. But I, <laughs> I have to keep it from him because he keeps licking it to the point there it's like wet, and I'm like, I don't think this is good for you. <laughs> oh my god! What a champion! I know. I know. What a good boy. <laughs> Uh, Anyway, anyway, uh, getting back to Okono, uh, like I said, she does not die in the manga. Instead, Yuki tricks her into taking over this life insurance business that uh, Yuki had started. And then soon after, the business starts falling apart, and Yuki frames Okono for murder and fraud. Uh, She then announces herself as her mother's daughter and says that she'll visit Okono in prison.
1: This, Uh, I feel like, was kind of a more satisfying arc, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah seeing her get like played at her own game and mm-hmm. then sent to suffer just how her mom did is a, a little bit more of a satisfying form of vengeance than her just dying in the movie
0: yeah absolutely because like like yuki presents this business to her and okono definitely could have said like no i don't think i'm gonna do this but because like okono is this terrible person who like wants money and to take advantage of people she was like yes of course i'll take over this business for you ha 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 dollar signs in her eyes mm-hmm. so yeah after okono's death though oyuki kind of reaches a dead end in her search for the three people and that's when it's suggested she makes contact with minara the writer so in the movie <sighs> minara is uh, ashio <laughs> He's, like, you know, kind of hunky guy. I didn't yeah. mention
2: he's got, like, sideburns in, like, a very, like, 70s hot guy way. I don't yes. know how else to
1: describe it. <laughs> yeah. Very Stereotypical no hunk. Like-
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, definitely the love interest. Yeah. Uh, then, uh, Minara, he's, like, a pervy, scheming old man um and basically yuki tricks him into writing her story by just like being super interesting in front of him
1: (laughs) Love that arc too where she's just like yeah i'm just really cool you know like i just go around killing people um, yeah you should write about me
0: because i'm trying to find these guys (laughs) and he's
1: like yeah of course i will
0: yeah so after the story comes out uh gishiro he like he sees the publication and he goes to Mianara just to be like what the fuck you have to stop writing this like like fuck you um and so Mianara is apprehended yuki goes with him in disguise and it's then where she reveals herself and she kills uh, gishiro along with a lot of his men and also while helping her uh Miyanara, he says that he cares really deeply about yuki and she tells him that she sees him like a father and they promise to meet again once all of her assassinations are complete.
1: Something something um, that I think that's kind of interesting in the manga is that like Yuki basically finds new parents and like finds new family yeah. in her journey to kill to get this vengeance. Cause like not only does Miyanara become like a father figure for her, but additionally the woman who gave birth to her Not like her mom, but the woman who delivered her. Sorry, the woman who (laughs) delivered her in the prison um, ends up being the one who trains her in pickpocketing. And she also is consistently like, I always will view you as my daughter. Like, you will be my daughter to me forever. Yeah, she even
0: at one point is, like, give up on this plot to, like, seek vengeance for your mother and just be my daughter. Like, you don't have to do this anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Yuki's like, no, I gotta keep doing this.
1: (laughs) I'd like to imagine that after her vengeance is achieved, that's what she'll go back to do
0: with her girlfriend. Yeah, me too.
1: Yeah!
2: Yeah.
0: Oh my god.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
2: I mean, I think we'll talk about this, but I think part of the reason I find this so interesting is that like most revenge, like the the things of most revenge movies, and I mean like when we get into Kill Bill, this will obviously also become obvious, is like the character has lost something yeah. or like has had something very explicitly taken from them as an individual. And like it's the catharsis of like seeing somebody wronged and like living through them wreaking vengeance and like being able to be in their shoes. But Yuki this is the vengeance of a family she's never known. Like this is all just sort of like honor and responsibility. And especially yeah. in the movie, like it's the narrative, not of like somebody losing their humanity through revenge, but almost in a weird way, gaining humanity through their adventure through revenge. Yeah. Like, yes. the, Which I think is very counter to most revenge narratives. And it's still, it's interesting that it still straddles, like, it's almost a pro-revenge story in that, like, oh, you will find more of your own personhood (laughs) and, like, happiness by completing the revenge successfully with some bumps along the way. But, like, there's not really any, like, punishment for her seeking revenge. It's framed Mm -hmm. as, like, a good thing. And, like, yet again, it's, like, um, I think in the manga, but explicitly in the movie, she becomes more like a person and more expressive and more human the further along she gets in her revenge journey, which I feel like is so Mm -hmm. counter to most revenge narratives. Like she's like a blank slate that like through the arc of the story actually gains character and personality in a way that I find really interesting.
1: And I also feel like that's something that Quentin Tarantino yoinked for Kill Bill, Mm -hmm. just Mm -hmm. saying Mm -hmm. like that's just yet Mm -hmm. another thing that was just snagged. Yeah,
0: (laughs) Yeah, actually, I'm so glad you brought that up because like, literally, when she completes her training from that priest, he's like, you are a goblin that assumes a human appearance. Like you are not a person like as you were saying in the movie, like very dehumanizing. And even when Yuki is born, her mother is like, this child, I am going to die now and my spirit is going to possess this child. I know. And I will Seek vengeance through this child i love that like yuki does kind of gain her own sense of self and like almost like a soul basically by the end of this by like completing these killings like it's almost like the possession of her mother her mother gets to rest in peace and and she gets to live her life after that that's kind of how like a a soul i'm not like super familiar with with buddhism but in Buddhism, like, you're not born with a soul. It, like, a soul is something that you kind of, like, gain over time by, like, becoming a person. And oh. so you kind of see that reflected in this. Anybody who knows more about Buddhism, you can, like, please email us at Aaron at Gaze Gaze if I'm, like, totally off the mark. But that is my understanding. We're getting into, like, some major movie to manga differences now. Part of that is, like, the first person she kills in the movie, Takamura, is actually the last person she kills in the manga And unlike his movie counterpart, Takamura seems sincerely remorseful about his actions. And he also seems to really care for his daughter. He begs for forgiveness, but Yuki kills him anyway. And Yuki does tell the daughter to go to Tokyo after her father's death. But she says that he killed himself because he didn't want his daughter being forced to sell herself to care for him. After that, like, again, a really interesting change after killing her final target, uh, Yuki looks out over the ocean and she's basically like, yay, smiley face. I can be normal now. And she throws her umbrella <laughs> sword into the sea. <laughs> um, and then as we've mentioned before, like, again, big change in the manga. Yuki is gay. Uh, she kills a woman by eating her out to death and she never really seeks out sex with women explicitly but she does seem to end up in situations with lesbians and whenever that happens she's always like down for sex so like you know (laughs) okay so i've
2: tracked in the manga she has sex with five people four of them are women she does have sex with one man it's Genshiro. do you remember this arc with the blackmailer
1: yes yeah oh which my is also
2: God. quick aside it's like not related super heavily to the main plot but is the most bananas like little mini thing of like it's this guy who's been like blackmailing people um like for money and you and you find out his like sad backstory as he's dying is he's like oh i was trying to gather this money because my dick is too big and all of the women in japan are too tiny for my big dick i just want to have sex uh, yeah. And you, he's like, well, that sucks. Um, you can fuck my thighs, though, as you die. It's
0: like his last request. And like, that is the only time she has sex with a man. Does he die? Because I thought that he kind of like passes out and she's like, I'm not going to kill him. And then the chapter oh, ends. Yeah. Oh, yeah. you're right. She doesn't kill him. She spares him. But that does
2: happen, which is even funnier than that. He, she's like your last request. And it's like, you're not even he's not even dying. But
1: she's just, I know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she's that like she's kind of like just like already has too big of an axe to bear (laughs) just
0: Just like with yuki completing her assassinations that guy is gonna wake up and be like "Uh, okay smiley face i can be normal now
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah maybe who knows
0: Mm -hmm. oh my god yes i love that he's yeah he's like i saw european women and i saw how big they were and i was like i need to get the money to go to europe
2: (laughs) i mean there's a whole thing later about european bodies and the differences
1: yes i was just gonna bring that up um maybe maybe jenny maybe you're thinking of something different but i'm thinking about the um lady snowblood resurrection chapters yes did did you go off to read those I did, I did. Yeah, um, okay, so Lady Snowblood, the original manga, it was published in Japanese Playboy, actually, um, from 1972 to 73. And after it was finished, Kazuo Koike, the author, found, like, he had this additional arc that he had written that I guess just, like, didn't really fit into the main storyline, so he never released it. But then after the manga finished... He also released it under the title Lady Snowblood Resurrection Chapter, uh, also in Playboy from 1973 to 74. And it's not fully scanlated. It's never had an official English release, but it does have a partial scanlation if you're ever interested in reading it. It is a side arc uh, where Yuki serves as a gymnastics instructor. And she starts assassinating people or killing that, just killing them, who think that women shouldn't train their bodies for strength, skill, flexibility, etc. All the stuff that comes with gymnastics. But a side part of, of that whole arc is that it has this weird bent on how Swedish women's bodies are like, quote unquote, perfect. And Japanese women should strive to look more like Swedish women because European oh, women's no. bodies have like a better form. Yeah, mm-hmm. something. I mean, something that also comes up in the main storyline of the manga is when Kazuo Koike gets into explaining the racial improvement theory of Japan, and then kind of takes the side of like it could have been good or bad. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I don't know if you remember <laughs> that. I have the I have it pulled up right now. Um, the way that he explains it is is this and this is a this is a direct quote from the official english translation the racial improvement theory terminated after inquiry was made to Spencer, the authority of evolution, who coined the term survival of the fittest. He predicted that mixing two extremely different races would produce inferior offspring, and ultimately the Japanese race would become extinct. As to the idea of abolishing the Japanese language, it was first practiced in junior high schools and rural communities, and there was an episode with a student who could not understand the entrance exam questions in Japanese and had to ask the exam supervisor to translate them into English. There was this whole movement that was just basically trying to eradicate the Japanese race again through the line of thought that, like, if we have people who are mixed race, eventually their Japanese traits will just like disappear. Jesus Which is, Christ. yeah, and yeah, again, his stance was kind of like, well, that's not how it worked out, so Jesus. <laughs> but, but it's like, what yeah, the fuck? <laughs> I know. Um, I feel like it actually now would also be a good point to talk about. Kazuo Koike's life more generally. Yeah. And he is a very, very interesting man. So he, Kazuo Koike, who wrote Lady Snowblood, he's a manga writer. He's not a manga artist. He he Hmm. has always partnered with artists that illustrate his stories, and for the most part, the artists that do illustrate his stories pretty much only work with him, um, though there are some exceptions. And I will say that that kind of structure of having a separate artist and writer It's something that's definitely more common in America, in American comics, than it is in Japanese comics. Mm -hmm. Like The only other artist that I can really think of that's like this is uh, Tsugumi Oba, who wrote the Death Note series. Though in that case, it's it's kind of interesting because Takashi Obata, the artist, is actually the one who's more famous than Oba is. Um, But Koike, like his fame for his storytelling far surpassed the fame that any of the artists that work with him achieved. Really. They're they're no they're notable for working with him. And aside from Lady Snowblood, his most popular works are Lone Wolf and Cub. Have either of you heard of or read this one?
0: Oh my god, I yes, I have, and this reminded me of it so much. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't realize uh, they were related. Yeah,
1: yeah, he so he wrote Lone Wolf and Cub. I, Aaron, you actually gave me your first volume of that. I still have it today. Um, oh, nice. I have not read it or, or personally, but I'm interested to read it. Um all I know is that it is a, a samurai story about the Tokugawa shogunate and basically the plot is that there's a shogun executioner who is falsely accused of something by another clan. And then that clan murders his wife and his family, but his newborn son survives. So he gives his son the choice: choose the ball or the sword. If you choose the ball, I will kill you to reunite with your mother in the afterlife to like play forever. But if you choose the sword, the two of us will go on a vengeance quest to assassinate the people who killed our family. And the baby obviously picks the sword, and then the t- he brings his baby on this like crazy vengeance journey. Um, very very popular. Yeah, I've seen this. There's tons of manga shots of just like an
2: absolutely fucking grim-looking samurai guy with, like, just, like, his little baby strapped on. And it's, like – I know this is actually referenced in Samurai Jack because, like, there's an episode that's kind of like that. Yeah, yeah. There's, like, an episode like that where at the end, like, Samurai Jack, like, basically adopts this baby, brings the baby home to his mom. And his mom is, like, why does my baby have, like – Thousand Yard Stare and Samurai Jack is like oh your baby has like it's like oh it's like the art of the samurai now and it's like oh well, this child actually probably just has PTSD but you know it'd be yeah
1: <laughs> Koike's other like so if if I were to order in terms of like popularity Lone Wolf and Cub is number one Lady Snowblood's number two and number three is a manga that's called Crying Freeman. Uh, which I had never heard of, but now I'm also very interested to read. It is about a silent hitman who's been trained and hypnotized by the Chinese mafia to assassinate people, that every Mm. time that he assassinates someone, his body reflexively cries in regret because he's like trapped inside his mind, he can't get out because he's hypnotized. Also interesting concept, yeah. He also wrote Marvel manga for a while, uh, including an X-Men manga and a Hulk manga. And finally, another very notable work of his that is way more popular in English than it ever was in Japan is the manga Color of Rage, which was released under a different and more offensive title in Japan uh, that is about a black man and a Japanese swordsman who are both slaves in Japan in the 1800s, and they escape slavery to travel the countryside together. He wrote it in the 70s. From American audiences, it has received extensive criticism about its reliance on tropes about black men, uh, particularly mm-hmm. that the lead character is a very large, very physically strong man who gets into trouble in Japanese society because he has a very proud sense of ethics that kind of foregoes like critical thinking about like what consequences might arise, uh, and then his Japanese oh. swordsman bestie like swoops in to save him from disaster repeatedly, uh, with the logic of like we work better together because this one guy has this like strong sense of justice and about how society should function. And then the other guy kind of has the manpower to help him navigate Japanese society because he has the understanding being born and raised in Japan. Um, well, so don't yeah. love the implications of that. I, but know.
2: I, I also, can I ask it? Was it just sort of like the title and general uh, plot and like character dynamics? How's the art? Because like, I feel like mm-hmm. sometimes manga artists, when they draw black characters, it's pretty horrible. Have you looked at
1: the art or I've read Color of Rage. Oh, okay. Um, and it is, it's better than many, and it's probably one of the better ones that you will see. Maybe, actually, I, I think that this might be the earliest depiction of a black character in manga in general, because it was written oh, no. in the early 70s. Um, Mm -hmm. definitely the first depiction of black people in historical fiction manga. Um, let me send you a picture of the art so that you can get a feel for it. Oh. Okay. I actually really
0: like this. Of course, dear listener, feel free to, like, look up how it looks yourself. But it's this, like, ultra-rendered style with a lot of like deep shadows and like intense
1: lighting it's very cool another thing that i forgot but looking at this uh panel i'm reminded of is that it really challenged um stereotypes about black men being rapists as well um in that like the main character is a very like very kind to all of the women that he meets and a lot of the women are just very afraid of him just because of you know racist ideology and like perception of meeting a black person for the very first time in their life. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Koike, he kind of has this penchant for talking about social issues in a lot of his manga.
2: I mean, I think we've discussed before, it's like sometimes like, I'm I'm a big fan of like, historical cultural context and just being like, you know what, compared to a lot of other shit that was coming out, like, I, I'll give props. Like, not too yeah. much props, but I, you know, if the bar is at the floor... Sometimes, if even if you just manage to crawl over it, that's something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess my last thing I want to get into before... I'd love to get into the Kill Bill Tarantino bashing section. I think probably one of the last things I want to say is that... I think I mentioned this, but I think it's also, like, the other where area we see. I Something that comes up it way more explicitly in manga is sort of hinted at in the movie. And obviously something that's completely lost in Kill Bill is also, like, the historical context of, like, this is Japan when, you know, it's exiting several hundred years of being, like more or less diplomatically closed off in the world Mm -hmm. becoming more imperialistic colonialist and also engaging in lots of like great power conflicts and like I think a lot of the leftist or like more interesting political ideology comes from sort of that and the fact that like the final villain in many ways especially explicitly of the movie but in the manga in many ways the last like cooler villain is like an arms dealer who is like explicitly flirting with like European ideology despite all and like bringing up all the weird race stuff. I don't know. I just think like yeah. that's something where that well, comes in in a really interesting way.
1: This is actually a great time for us to talk about the second movie. Yeah. Um, so, Ooh. like I said, this is not based on the manga at all. Um, the director just went off and got to make their second take. The plot is... And maybe I just wasn't paying as close of attention as I needed to be, to be quite honest. But the plot was hard to follow. And it wasn't until like digging and reading through some summaries that I started to understand it more. And at first I thought it was just me. But then I looked at reviews of the movie too. And a lot of them are pretty poor. So (laughs) do with that knowledge what you will. I actually
0: didn't watch this movie, but I did from reading reviews on it. It was like, it's beautiful. The plot is bad, though. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, well, into, two, I will say one of the writers of the screenplay, Norio Osada, he has said himself now that the script is unsatisfactory. He <laughs> said that he was having creative differences with the other screenplay writer, Kiyohide Ohara, as well as with the director, Toshio Fujita. And he thought that Fujita was trying to make this movie more in line with his personal style. Yeah, because they didn't have to closely base it on the manga, and because of that, that led to some strife between all of the people that were working on it. That's also something to note. The basic plot of the movie, as simple as I can get it, is that it takes place immediately after Japan has won the Russo-Japanese War, and political power in very small towns is becoming something that's more scary, something that's more frightening, and um, also opening up to more cultural exchange, is something that is happening during this movie. So Yuki has finished her vengeance. She's wandering around aimlessly, basically. Like, what do I do next? And then she is caught by the police and sentenced to death. And moments before she's executed, she is saved by a very discreet head of the secret police who gives her a job. And he wants her to work for the police and, and pose as a maid and uh, spy on slash maybe assassinate a very prominent leftist political anarchist who's named Ransui. They also want her to steal one of his documents, but she doesn't know exactly what's in the document and why they want her to take it. So she she gets like stuck in a bear trap in the woods. Um, also kind of interesting, she's definitely played a lot more like helpless in this movie, which is weird, but maybe comes with the context of like, now that she's finished her life goals, what is there left for her to do? So she ends up getting saved by this man named Shunsuke, who is a very like dry and silent, not talkative, not very friendly guy, and he's a doctor. And then they end up having this sort of fling thing going on, and she learns that Shunsuke, the doctor, is Ransui's brother. Coincidental, oh, wow. and so she gets to know both of them, and she learns that they are like really gentle people who care a lot for their communities, and that's why they're political anarchists. So she ends <laughs> up siding with them against the Japanese government. Uh, she also finds that document, oh, nice. and it outlines that the government has been like lying about a bunch of shit that allowed them to win the Russo-Japanese War and rise to power, and they're planning to continue lying about their power in order to become like an imperialist force. And she wants to stop that. So eventually. Odantui, he's captured by the government and infected with the plague as an attempt to kill him and make it seem natural. Yeah, and so Shunsuke, who's a doctor, like sticks him in the shed and treats him. But this whole experience of that happening makes Lady Snowblood crave vengeance against the government so now she's she, addicted to vengeance she's addicted like to oh vengeance. she's got her fix so she kills the entire police force um God, and what a Shun, boss. i love is there to help her um she gets shot she survives she's like fine but Shunsuke has very grave wounds after the fight and he begs for lady snowblood to kill him she does it like kind of emotionless honestly and then that's that that's the end of the movie. Like I said, it's not very good, but it also I feel like they were trying to hearken to some of Kwake's like somewhat leftist inclination or like inclination for societal progress. Mm-hmm. That has been a heavy theme along with family in all of his work. But yeah, it doesn't really capture the audience and its storytelling at all the same way that the first movie does. So I would not recommend it's, giving it a
2: watch. It sucks because like, the way you describe it, it sounds like a lot of fucking. Like the fact that it's like Lady Snowbud slaughters an entire police station sounds amazing. It very weird comparison that is not relevant at all. But have you guys ever seen the horror movie *Malignant*? Yes, incredible bad <laughs> horror movie where like the bad person like. I don't even want to spoil it, but they kill a whole thing of, like, cops, and it's, like, the most satisfying scene ever, and I'm like, oh, this sounds great, but it's, like, the fact that you're, like, here's this banana's pot, there's plague, there's dead cops, there's everything, and it's, like, it sucks. I'm like, oh, it must be very bad. I know.
1: No, it's very, it's slow, it's boring. A lot of it is just, like, Yuki and Shunsuke sitting around in his, like, dilapidated cabin talking about how much they hate the government. Like, it's just... It's not it, you guys. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Uh mm-hmm. and yeah, obviously no lesbian activity. Yeah.
0: yeah. Also the being infected with the plague, like considering like World War II Japanese war crimes against <gasps> <Yeah>. <gasps> prisoners of war. I was like, is that a reference to that? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Jesus fucking Christ. It's- <laughs> yeah it's quite a I mean like yeah. wait I mean like I guess good good job going there like that's a reason to fucking hate the government for real
1: yeah well yeah and then they drop him off like half dead and infected with the plague they like shot I think shot him multiple times and yeah then his oh. brother just like shoves him in the shed and it's like all right you stay in there now we'll be back for you later damn mm-hmm. hashtag yeah. overkill I know but but yeah so again Don't go out of your way to watch that one, you guys. Seriously. (laughs) I... (laughs) You can stop uh, after the first one. It's fine. Sometimes sequels shouldn't get made. Sometimes I forget.
2: Your summary was all the entertainment I needed. That was probably better than watching the movie. Though I'm sure there's cool shots. I'll look up, like, still images, and then when I'm listening to this episode, just be like, wow, Aaron's
1: summary is so good, and I'm looking at cool screenshots. This is all I need. <laughs> yeah, that, that is truly all that you need. And sometimes sequels shouldn't be made. Do you know it's a movie that has a sequel that definitely should have been made? It is Kill Bill. Let's talk about Kill Bill. <laughs>
2: Kill Bill. Okay, I was not able to find anything. I think we all did, like, some tentative research. And I would love to be corrected on this. But I did not find any explicit interview with Tarantino where he talks about, like, yeah, no. Lady Snowblood, blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, it's not even, like, a an implication. Like, as we'll get into, like, there are explicit things drawn from this movie. I want to start this with saying that, like... One of the, my favorite stories was apparently this Lady Snowblood showed at a film festival in like two, the early 2000s. So after both Kill Bill and obviously Lady Snowblood had been made um, and another director heard ter- it, the film was being shown With Spanish subtitles and Tarantino was with a German friend and he was literally live translating because he had apparently seen Lady Snowblood so many times that this other director was like, Oh my god, this guy knows this movie so well that he's able to relay every moment and every line of the plot in (laughs) German, like to this guy. Um, like even though it's like obviously in Japanese and the subtitles were in Spanish, he was like translating it and like, In another language, like it was like this guy knows the movie, this movie like the back of his hand, and is like a little obnoxious about it. So yeah, he's a big Snowblood fan.
1: I couldn't find him talking about it either, but I did find like or like mentions of the crew saying that he forced everybody that worked on the Kill Bill movies to watch Lady Snowblood so they could understand it.
0: Yeah, that he said like everybody, you know, go back and watch Lady Snowblood again. Like we need to keep this movie in mind while we're making Kill Bill
2: probably the nicest thing he did during filming of any movie he did. I've heard he's a real (laughs) asshole, so, you know.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Well, uh, one thing that I was learning about about Kill Bill that I didn't even know about was the whole situation with Uma Thurman and the car crash. Did you hear about that? I
0: know. Oh. Uh, yeah, um, I'd
1: forgotten about that. Fucking horrible. She like really suffered in the production of Kill Bill. So like not only was this was the Kill the Kill Bill movies were produced by Harvey Weinstein who sexually harassed and assaulted Uma Thurman. But Tarantino also forced Uma Thurman to drive a car that she told him she was not comfortable driving and that she requested a stunt driver drive for her but he made her do it and then later said he didn't force her but ultimately she got into a horrible car accident uh, and crashed into a tree and left with a concussion and seriously injured her knees as well and that completely ruined her relationship with Tarantino moving forward she wasn't in his movies after that because yeah up until that point she had been considered like his muse by many people and had been featured Mm -hmm. in all of his movies I believe
2: yeah, he's so he's kind funny. of a piece of shit, but uh, he's clearly a huge fan of this movie. Um, I mean, we have a little list of all of the exact things that are drawn, but I mean, Oren Ishii, if you've seen the movie, uh, so Lucy Liu's character is clearly just based on Lady Snowblood, pretty like her narrative, like revenge plot, avenging her parents, um, a little more like personalized. I would almost say like Americanized in terms of like. There's less of, like, oh, it's my family responsibility or, like, familial responsibility or I'm honor-bound to do this versus, like, I witnessed my parents get murdered, so I took revenge. Mm-hmm. Um, there's tons – the big action scene is, like, in the snow – the, my, my favorite little fact is that the song that plays while Oren dies is actually, it's a song called Flower of Carnage and it's sung by Mako Kaji, who is the actress who played Lady Snowblood and actually led to oh a resurgence of her singing career. So it's like, yet again, it's like direct. Yeah. direct reference and well, comparison.
1: And that is the song that's it, that is the opening song for the Lady Snowblood movie too. That she, so exactly. she's saying that for Lady Snowblood and then yeah plays when Oren Ichi is killed.
2: Yeah. So just just directly drawn my other i guess my other favorite little story is so i went to see this movie with my girlfriend and it was funny cuz i was like oh like there's a really cool like assassin movie all this kind of stuff and like it inspired kill bill and she's kind of like oh yeah i liked kill bill like tarantino's kind of a shithead but i liked kill bill and as we like the movie's ending and i was like turning to be like oh what do you think um as we were finishing watching lady snowblood and they just turned to me and are like inspired i'm pretty sure tarantino just fucking stole
1: that yeah <laughs> <laughs> (laughs) Even like the scene that I kind of latched onto, there's a scene in the movie that references the manga that pulls up and plays a bunch of the manga panels as it's like narrating a part of the story. And then obviously in Kill Bill, when they're telling the background story for Oda and Ishii, they animate the entire sequence instead of having it acted. Um, Mm -hmm. which is such, like, also a rip-off, honestly. At that point, not a reference. It made me think about, have you guys seen the um, interviews with Satoshi Kon about his opinion on Requiem for a Dream and its rip-off of Perfect Blue?
0: No, I haven't. Um, I haven't.
1: It was going around a while back. Um, Let me see if I can pull it up, but uh, just so I can get some of his quotes right.
0: It did make me think of Perfect Blue and the black swan which i know that like yes i guess they asked permission specifically to use some of the scenes from perfect blue in black swan but like it is just they just kind of recreate it live action which yeah and and that's what
1: they why bother that's exactly what they did in requiem for a dream as well i don't have a direct quote um i can share this quote satoshi Kon posted on his blog that's obviously been translated into English, but where he said, I'm feeling pathetic. It's a pitiful tale when the person being paid homage to has less name recognition, less social credibility and less budget to spend. And in a video interview, he went on to say um, that like he flies general admission on flights versus like meeting the actors (laughs) In Requiem for a Dream, including Jared Leto, it's like they're on their fucking private jets. Meanwhile, I'm out here like barely making it in a lot of ways. And you're telling me that you're paying homage to me when you make your movie and rip off entire scenes. And try to mm-hmm. sell them to an American audience rather than just encouraging people to seek out diversity in what it is that they're watching, which is a very fair point. It, it just, that just made me think about all that because I had just seen the, that Satoshi Kon interview like a month ago. Um, yeah, wow. yes, very, yeah. very similar for Tarantino, where it's like you are taking this movie by this director. It's that this movie, Lady Snowblood, is the most known thing that this director has ever made, right? Mm-hmm. And it has zero name recognition in America also. Mm -hmm. The only people who recognize it recognize it because of Kill Bill for the most part.
2: Yeah, well, and even then, it's like, the fact, it makes me actually kind of even more annoyed that he hasn't explicitly credited it as an inspiration in an interview. Like, it's like you're directly drawing from it. It's not just visual. You're such a fan of the movie, but you can't be like, like, okay, perfect example actually, weird comparison, but actually very relevant, is um, Everything Everywhere every what is the
1: everything most everywhere movie all that at once came,
2: yeah so you, that movie came out and there was some movie that had inspired that oh my god what was the movie that inspired that uh everything one second i am going to go down a quick rabbit hole
1: that's okay i'm googling too the matrix <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, but it was like a, it was like a very um, lesser known police story, Magnolia crouching. Oh no, no, no. Okay.
2: Dragon. So related totally. So Daniel Kwan, there's a bunch of scenes, like one of the scenes, uh, the like movie alternate life that Michelle Kwan's character has where she's a movie star which is kind of also based off her life doesn't matter Um, a lot of the visuals are taken from the the movie in the mood for love uh, which is a super pretty famous like early 2000s when I would say one of the best romance movies of all time but not super well known in America and the director for everything everywhere all at once was like we took huge visual inspiration from this movie go see it it rocks it's amazing it's underappreciated in the United States like it's one of the best love stories of all time super beautiful super tragic please go watch it i'm like yeah that's another example of like it's a good example of a the everything everywhere at once director and sort of movie wasn't like this like super well-established director that's like stealing from a lesser known thing it feels more of like artistic exchange yeah. and the director was like here is the inspiration for this scene aesthetic vibe we were going for please go see it like see my movie but also see the original and i'm like that's such a perfect model for how to take like take from something that's like at a similar artistic almost like power level uh or like notoriety level or like i don't know level mm-hmm. of famousness but then also just be like hey if you liked this you're gonna fucking love this and here's how to watch this movie and support the original cast studio etc mm-hmm. and i was like we've well, got a good model right there like All artists, you know, build on other art and like visual reference is such a wonderful part of media. And it's like, how fucking hard would it have been to be like, hey, let's watch Lady Snowblood. And like with Tarantino's power, I bet he could have been like, hey, I'm going to like get Lady Snowblood a really like solid English translation and like release in America. Like if he had put his name on it, people and been like, this inspired Kill Bill. Like people would be flocking to it constantly, especially in like the early 2000s.
1: It is so funny that you bring that up, because something that I was really curious about and was looking into was the branding of the manga releases. So if you look Ooh. at the English release manga, and also the later releases of the Japanese manga, they are bound in all black and yellow with large impact font that just says Lady yeah. Snowblind and has like a blood splatter and a picture of her on it. And I was like, hmm... What came first, the chicken or the egg? Like, did the Lady Snowblood manga have this branding first, or did they do it after Kill Bill? And from everything that I've seen, it looks like that was a branding choice that was made after the Kill Bill movies came out to try to gain some like brand recognition, basically, to say, you know, like, hey, this is the work that, you know, inspired Kill Bill. It's related. Come read it. Instead mm-hmm. of obviously standing on its own. That sh- I just like think that that's also interesting where it's like if the manga releases are doing a callback to kill Bill, but then kill <laughs> Quentin Tarantino isn't doing anything <laughs> to promote the fact that he oh. like lifted this whole story from this manga in anime or manga and movie. Yeah. And it's Tarantino also like a
2: guy challenge. But
1: sorry, I <laughs> can <laughs>
0: Like, I do think they're extremely similar, but I do think that, like, even though Tarantino sucks, like, I do think that Kill Bill stands on its own in certain ways. Mm -hmm. However, like, if he had just been, like, I was really inspired by Lady Snowblood, I think it would... It just, it would have been fine. Like, why yeah. didn't you do that? Like, obviously I, you're obsessed with this movie. Why did you want to keep it to yourself?
1: Also, mm-hmm. I, you guys, I feel like it would feel a little bit less, like, fetishistic, too, if each of the Absolutely. other assassin characters were also inspired by a similar piece of media. But it's mm-hmm. just Orin Ishii. Like, El Driver, yeah. the, like, assassin with the eye patch, doesn't seem to be a specific callback to anything. Neither does... um Fuck, what's her name? But the Vivica A. Fox, her character, um, who's like the first one that's murdered, she also doesn't appear to be a direct callback to any other movie or franchise or anything. So it just feels weird when it's just the one thing and it's just the one character and it's such a major part of the entire first movie.
2: Well, and I also feel like Tarantino's just such a a jerk off kind of guy and that he's like very (laughs) aware of the fact that he like has access to and like has actually like a really good like eye for cinematography and like foreign film like his reference he has like fucking encyclopedic knowledge of like spaghetti westerns like italian neo noir cinema but like rather than be like it doesn't feel celebratory it feels like he's just it's like a masturbatory like celebration of his own intelligence and reference yeah. to those films rather than like an attempt to actually share it with his audience or like actually get people interested in those styles it's like isn't this cool it's like it's like building in easter eggs that make him look smart rather than yes. like actually attempting to connect with his audience which is like a very weird approach to film that I feel like does create sort of like, I know, I, I think his, his star is waning. Like I think in the early, like late nineties, early two thousands, especially he had a really powerful cult of personality. But like nowadays it's really funny. Cause I was telling somebody I was going to be recording this podcast and it was like somebody like about my brother's age, like Gen Z. And he was like, Oh, Tarantino, isn't that that foot fetish guy? Like that's like, the yeah, I was
1: going to say yeah.
2: um, and, <laughs> and, like, he's almost a joke now.
1: Yeah. And Tarantino too. I mean, he has said that his next movie will be his last one. He's also teased like sequels to Kill Bill for years, and just li- literally just last week was like, "Uh, actually, never mind. I'm done with Kill Bill. We're not doing anything with it. I'm, i saying no more." Which is fair. I think that it's so relevant too that you brought up that like Tarantino's making of Kill Bill is like a mass not masturbatory. Like this is how much I know. But then. That also goes perfectly in line with then why he would gatekeep Lady Snowblood from his audience because that's like, that's like his thing that he gets to know all about, right? And that's what makes him like so cool. Yeah, exactly. Man. It's just
2: such a, it's such a stress, like, straight white man approach to like cinema where it's like rather than like here's this cool or like art generally where it's like here's this cool thing that I want to share and like have everybody take part of and like joy of like community around media it's like here's how smart I am and good I am at movies (laughs) and it's like this is so so grim this is so grim like have a sense of community please I'm begging you just be gay
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah no it's giving like late middle-aged man with a very young girlfriend being like let's listen to led zeppelin i bet you've never heard of this let me tell you all about it let me let me culturize you
1: young thing that's like bill's character too in the fucking movie yeah i know there's so many levels of reference
2: it's painful
1: (laughs) and and also i i feel like it would be remiss not to mention that people have a wide variety of opinions about whether or not Kill Bill is like a feminist movie. That's also I mean has been literatured to death, really, <laughs> in in the feminist media analysis sphere. I feel like even if you have the mentality of death to the author, Kill Bill is is a tricky one to like make a real firm claim that it's a piece of feminist media. Um, especially yeah. when you have a, char- a character that doesn't even get a name until they're buried
2: yeah. yeah my kill bill my quick kill bill opinion is that um I have a great time every time I watch it yes but like it's not like I don't watch it to feel good about gender relations (laughs) i watch it i watch it to see hot women fight it's the same as when i sometimes watch like wwe female wrestling and i'm like part of me is like this is probably exploitative and a little bad but then my monkey brain is like hot women fight hot women fight this rocks
0: the monkey brain is real (laughs) yes um yeah well i think this is actually good transition into something i did want to just touch on at least uh, which is just like the rape revenge trope mm-hmm. in general mm-hmm. um and yeah obviously kind of tired and it's also just such a large trope in general that i feel like it can range from like pretty feminist to like just exploitative yep. and mm-hmm. and all of the conversations around it are also kind of like <laughs> maybe a little bit tired i kind of appreciate In Lady Snowblood, the manga and the movie, it's, it's her seeking revenge for somebody else, just because it Mm kind of like, I don't know, I guess it just like kind of lessens the blow, maybe to that a little bit. Mm -hmm. And that is one change from Kill Bill to the movie that it's just like, it just feels so much more exploitative, because you see the bride suffer like so much, I guess. Yeah,
1: versus we see some of the suffering of Yuki's mother. But we never see Yuki really suffering. She's just fine. She's out there on her vengeance quest. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, like I said kind of earlier, she, like, gains
2: personhood from it. Because I think so many – because that's the tricky thing with rape revenge movies is I think so many of them are, like, wow, this is, like, even though you were wrong in this horrible way, it's so bad you're losing yourself through revenge. But it's, like – Yeah. I think something that's, like – when is what is the fine line between like justice and revenge Mm -hmm. and i think the approach of like the traditional revenge narrative is is like oh you're gonna lose everything through this but it's like when is it actually just like a form of very cathartic and sometimes like aesthetically hyperbolized but like very satisfying justice for wrongdoing versus like, yeah, yeah, when is it all consuming? And yeah. So it's like I think that's like a unique part of the narrative that I really like.
1: I feel like that finding yourself and finding family thing is also something that Tarantino tried to reference in Kill Bill, especially in Kill Bill Part Two, even though part two is a much less transparent reference to Lady Snowblood, where we get the point where you know the bride is learning her name. For the fir- well, well, the audience is learning her name and like finally giving her some degree of personhood with that, and also like the normal scenes where she like reunites with her daughter and they like watch TV together and have like a quote unquote like real like family experience, you know? Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. it just doesn't hit. The same way that Lady Snowblood does, because Lady Snowblood is better media than Kill Bill is. Sorry, Tarantino. It's just you, so I'm true. sure he knows that too. That he can't mm-hmm. like doing a referential work. You can't live up to the original, um, especially for something as grand as this series is. Really, so
2: and that's why he'll never reference it because he knows it's not as good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, he's never gonna make his sequel or whatever, and he's never gonna tell anybody what the name of it is, because then they're gonna go watch it or read it and be like, "Damn, this is better than Kill Bill is." But honestly, there are so many people who are just like ride or die Tarantino heads too. That I bet that a lot of people did go out to watch this and they were like, "Oh well, that kind of sucked." <laughs> I know. Damn, couldn't be. Damn. Damn. <laughs> Couldn't be me. Um, I really liked <laughs> Lady Snowblood. I am really glad that you brought it to our attention and that you... Yeah. It, it was um, way more sapphic than I expected it to be. Also, to be quite honest, the manga was. Mm-hmm. Even when I first started reading it, I was like, how gay is this really going to be? And then she's out there like having mad sex with women left and right. Yeah. Good. For Eating her. a girl <gasps> mean, out
0: to death. And the girl and for even is like... Yeah, she. Well, she's even like, I know this is gonna kill me, but I don't care. It feels so good.
2: I mean, I think isn't this the girl? It's like she's dying of tuberculosis, so she's like, okay, I can either die slowly for a year or I can literally go out with a bang. Who's to yeah. say we wouldn't make the same decision? You know, if I, I can't say I know what tuberculosis feels like, but I do know what getting eaten out feels like.
1: Ah! <laughs> oh my god And i'm just saying i'm just saying fair enough Uh, but yeah yeah yeah, so uh, for
0: for why she did it that is a great question the plot of that chapter is that she needs to steal this book that has like dates of everybody's death in it so that the beggars can have it in order to go to people's houses and be like so and so died on this day do you mind giving us a little bit of cash uh, we were friends with him or whatever and then apparently that works um <laughs> but yeah I mean she didn't that her thing was like I'm gonna eat this girl out to death and then during the funeral I can steal the book because the book will be available to me I don't know if she necessarily had to do that <laughs> but I
1: think but she was like was well this girl's plan. gonna die anyway I might as well give her time. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you know what might as let's both have some fun yeah
2: like I said out with a bang yeah. yeah. It's a more fun and way she d- to kill someone,
1: I guess. Mm-hmm. I also
0: didn't mention in Yuki's set of skills that she's also an excellent artist. And so she seduces this girl by drawing pictures of genitalia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Well, gl- yeah, like I said, glad to be the
2: lesbian assassin. Maybe not specialist, but I'm I'm still on the hunt. So I'm keeping an eye out uh see if i can either dig for some old gems or if any new stuff comes up you guys will be the first people i tell <laughs> oh my god thank you
1: <laughs> if you ever find anything else interesting that you just want to talk about too you know you are always welcome back oh thank We're you it's always been a happy blast. to have you <laughs> here no it's no it's been a blast for for me mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah thank you so much for coming on yeah is there anywhere that people can like find you online that you'd want them to
2: oh yeah well i'm gonna do a quick plug for uh we took a bit of a hiatus but my i have a Yukio podcast with my friend ellie who has also been on gaze gaze for the really good sailor moon episode um but you can find us on twitter at battle city broad um we just picked up after like an unexpected hiatus and we're having a lot of fun we're going through the battle city arc right now so if you're a Yu-Gi-Oh fan it's been a blast we are having a great time so feel free to find me on twitter through there uh and yeah it's been wonderful
1: thank you so much for listening and joining us if you feel like it you should go follow us on twitter at GazeGaze. we're still there we're still riding down with the ship um you can tm <laughs> us um and give us recommendations, thoughts, ideas. You can also always email us at erin at GazeGaze.com. Thank you to Kate and Leslie of Neon and Nude for letting us use their songs Look in Love and Do Pretty Thing for intro and our outro. You can buy their album at neonandnude.bandcamp.com, um, and you can also stream it on Spotify. Our next episode will cover <laughs> the documentary Crocodike Dundee. Um, oh my God. very <laughs> interested to watch that and we will also be watching Crocodile Dundee just for fun so <laughs> <laughs> make sure to come back and join us for that one it will be a very interesting episode I feel but until then I'm Erin
0: and I'm Erin
1: and I'm Jenny and, and we're all gay,
0: gay. Bye. bye hey, hey.